Welcome to Global Supply Chain event. I'm here with Brooke Sutherland. She's an opinion columnist at Bloomberg, focused on the industrial sector, uh, aerospace, and really uh, involved in tracking what's happening in the broader supply chains. Brooke, welcome today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. So a lot of a lot of stuff's going on in the sectors that you are uh, specifically tracking. You've been heavily involved in what's happening with aerospace. I know that you and I have uh, been on air talking about uh, the parcel companies and the railroads. Just so much to really unpack here. Uh, but perhaps we start. You uh, you cover a lot in the industrial side, and particularly have touched on Honeywell. Um, they recently did something that was different than their core business. They actually were involved in a vaccination effort down in Charlotte. Talk a little bit about what that was like. They are. I mean, I think this is really fascinating what they did. And so uh, it's an interesting backstory. The CEO of Honeywell, Darius Adamchak, just was taking a walk in his local neighborhood and happens to live relatively nearby um, the head of Tepper Entertainment um, and also a local healthcare system down there. And they just were frustrated at the pace of the vaccine rollout in North Carolina and thought they could do something about it. Um, so there's obviously a couple of different skill sets being brought to the fore there. But what I thought was really interesting coming from the manufacturing world is how much Honeywell relied on its expertise in industrial engineering and sort of the core lean manufacturing principles to make this process move more efficiently. Uh, and it's when you think about it, I mean, a mass vaccination event is really like an assembly line. You're trying to move people in and out as quickly as possible. There's very distinct steps. You need to have people registered. You need to actually give them the shot. And then the CDC is requiring this observation period after the vaccines just to monitor for any side effects, particularly for older, more at-risk people. And you can't have pileups because that's how you get people waiting in line where they're maybe not socially distanced or, you know, they just get turned off from the whole experience and decide they don't want to get vaccinated at all. And so it really helps if you think about this like a manufacturing process and you think about it in seconds and how many shots can we give? Uh, how many seconds does it get to get those shots into arms? And it keeps everything moving much more efficiently. And I think the anecdote that really got me is Honeywell was talking about their uh, event that they held at the Bank of America Stadium where the Carolina Panthers play. They got out those ropes, the crowd control ropes, like what you see at Disney World or the Yankee Stadium or whatever it is, maybe not so much lately, but in the pre-pandemic times. And then they took them down because they didn't need them. People were just showing up for their appointments on time and walking right through because everything was moving so efficiently. And so this just got me thinking about, well, Honeywell doesn't have a lock on lean manufacturing. I mean, this is something every company, almost every company that I cover espouses and say that they use to, to you know, boost their productivity, their operations. And so it just seems like this is a huge missed opportunity if some of these other states don't reach out to their local manufacturers and say, hey, how can we do this better? What can you do for us? How can you make this process more convenient and also just more productive? Yeah, it seems like uh, certainly there's a, a desire the Biden administration uh, to actually involve the private sector much more so than we saw before. It was almost a hands-off, uh, leave it up to the states, which is in itself a recipe for disaster. Uh, are we going to see more companies you, you think going forward involved in broader uh, elements of supply chain uh, vaccination distribution? Uh, there's been discussions about the uh, big drugstores uh, and the Biden administration doing distribution through drugstores. Do you think that's a trend that uh, we're going to see more of? I definitely do. I mean, to your point, I think it's interesting that we're having all these conversations now and not uh, six months ago when it might have been more 
helpful. But um, I do think, you know, there's a lot of companies that are thinking about this. Another one that I talked to was Train, which is also doing a program in North Carolina, partnering with a local healthcare system there to sort of improve their logistics for vaccine distribution um, and also providing, obviously, their super freezers uh, to help keep those vaccines cold. But um, Carrier is another HVAC company, and they're talking uh, with people in their home state of Florida about what they can do there to help move this along. And I'm sure there are others out there. I mean, manufacturers tend to have headquarters sort of all over the country. Um, and so, you know, I, I would certainly hope that we do see more of this. On the drugstore front, I mean, this is something that these companies know how to do. Every year they give out flu shots, they give out booster shots for measles or whatever it might be. I mean, they have the infrastructure in place to do this. And I think, um, you know, I had talked to the head of uh, who's overseeing this at CVS a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, he was very much of the mind of just give us the supplies and we can figure out how to get it into arms. And I do think that you're seeing more of that attitude from the Biden administration. And I think it can only help. I mean, this really just plays to a lot of the skill sets of these companies and they have every interest in getting it right because, you know, their own financials are on the line just as much as anything. There's been a difference in, in how this administration is sort of involving private sector. There are other big issues that are intersecting with the private sector. But there's also a, a change in regulation, a lot more discussion about antitrust and M&A activity. What is your expectations that we'll see, uh, whether it's in aerospace and military and defense, what, what are your thoughts on sort of the future of that uh, industry in terms of regulation? Well, it's always been interesting to me, you know, that there was all this talk about breaking up the big tech companies and so much consternation about how much power they had amassed. When you look at the aerospace and defense sector and you look at the consolidation that's happening there, um, you know, with United Technologies merging with Raytheon, that's a blockbuster deal that creates a real behemoth in that aerospace and defense industry. But even before that, when Boeing was you know, being pretty aggressive about gobbling up uh, parts of the supply chain or bringing some of that work in-house. And nobody really ever talked about that. And I, it'll be interesting to see if that changes under a Biden administration that takes a tougher look um, at antitrust. And there's already been comments uh, from the Democratic commissioner, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who's holding the acting chair position at the FTC about vertical integration is something that needs to be given a closer look. Uh, and, you know, we heard this week from Raytheon raising concerns about a Lockheed Martin takeover of Aerojet uh, Rocketdyne just because, you know, that, that really sort of consolidates that industry. And so I do wonder if the activity that was happening at such a rapid pace before the pandemic, before the Biden administration is going to be able to continue. And I think that uh, you're gonna see more pushback on some of these deals than maybe there was before, partly for political reasons, but also partly from practical reasons. I mean, I think if you look at the Boeing 737 MAX crisis, can anybody honestly tell me that it's a good idea to put more of the supply chain under Boeing? Yeah, it's, it's certainly been challenging, but there there's, if you think of global supply chains and trade policy and how that's impacted the way that the former administration sort of was very, it was a level of consistency in terms of wanting, uh, you know, America first was sort of the positioning, but inconsistent sort of execution on those issues and volatile sort of decision-making. This administration seems far more uh, trying to restore the traditional American brand of engaging in trade policy with more consistency 
But are we going to see a more protectionist uh, environment or are we going to see more of a, a sort of a global trade environment? Are we moving back towards sort of Clinton economics uh, that we had in the 90s? Or are we going to move more towards a, a, a pretty protection environment? What do you think there? I think it's going to be interesting to see, and we don't really know yet. I mean, for obvious reasons, the Biden administration has been very focused on the COVID-19 pandemic and coming up with solutions for that and focused on the vaccine rollout. You know, the tariffs uh, that were left in place since China by the Trump administration are still there. So, you know, there hasn't really been a shift in policy there. Now, that may be coming. Um, I, I would certainly say it's my expectation that with U.S. allies, with places like Canada and Europe, some of those trade squabbles that, um, you know, many certainly in the business community felt were ill-advised, those will probably wind down. I mean, I know that one that a lot of people focus on is the, the long-running Boeing and Airbus subsidy dispute where, you know, there's just no winner there. And honestly, these governments both have played a role in supporting their aerospace industries over the year. And I think that this has gotten well beyond the point of uh, rational thinking. And so I think that that's one where you can expect, hopefully, that we have a solution there. Um, but, you know, in terms of your broader question about um, nationalism, I, I mean, I think what you're getting at is, our company is going to go back to sort of the global far-flung supply chain networks of the past. And I think that ship has failed. Um, whether or not you take a really hostile attitude toward China on the trade front, I mean, I think all of these companies were already talking about local for local manufacturing and wanting to have those networks closer to the point of consumption. And, you know, I think the pandemic has just really enforce why that's important um, and the need to build up resiliency in the supply chains. And, you know, something that, that crisscrosses around the globe several times is not the most resilient of supply chains. No, and it's not, it's not responsible. I mean, one thing that our audience is having, you know, having to deal with this and respond to these geopolitical events and, uh, you know, COVID and, and trade policy and everything that's sort of going on all at once and dealing with the now dealing with this massive surge of volume of freight moving through the global economy, it's really created havoc. My wife and I are building uh, an addition to our house and we can't, you know, we order items that are, are now being delayed months uh, that you used to get in days. And it's, it is, it's certainly putting strain on, on uh, companies and how they manage those supply chains. Uh, one of our investors, Prologist, actually did a study of nearshoring, and uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence and conversation about nearshoring, and they wanted to actually find out if, if this was a real fact or if this is sort of conversational. One of the things that they learned is there hasn't been an, an over uh, amount of movement of manufacturing into the U.S., a lot of forward movement of inventory in warehouses, but not or plans to do that. I think we're still playing catch up, but they haven't actually been able to accomplish that yet. What are you hearing about or seeing? Well, I would be very interested in uh, taking a look at that study because that that anecdotally lines up with my thinking on this is that, you know, there was a huge um, burst of enthusiasm around reshoring when the pandemic first started. And I think we were all sort of in that mindset of maybe making uh, many knee-jerk predictions on how the world would change. And you know, as time has gone on, the companies that are talking about reshoring, onshoring 
are the automation equipment makers. And they have an obvious reason for talking about this is because they would be the prime beneficiaries of any sort of relocation of manufacturing back to the U.S. Because, you know, while the differential in wages between China and Mexico certainly is less stark than it was, you know, even a few years ago, if you're talking about bringing work back, you're, you're probably looking at automation. You're looking at robotics. You're looking for a way to do this much more efficiently. Um, and so I think it's very interesting that those are the companies that are talking about this. And they sort of all point to the same handful of examples. You know, there's the Taiwan semiconductor company that's looking to put a plant in the U.S. and Arizona. Uh, I think there's been reporting on Samsung maybe putting a facility in Texas. And then some of the life sciences companies, although that's obviously very pandemic focused with the need to sort of make sure that we do have a resilient supply chain for some of those necessary healthcare supplies. And beyond that, I don't really hear that many manufacturers talking about it. And I've been asking CEOs, you know, are you looking to reshore work. And the answer that I tend to get is we already had a local for local strategy. This was part of our business model. That being said, I do think there's pressure on the lower portions of the supply chain to catch up with that. That is one thing for a big manufacturer like Honeywell or Train or Carrier or whatever it is to have their manufacturing localized, but some of those parts makers might not. And I think that there's more need to either duplicate some of those suppliers to make sure that if you have an issue somewhere else in the globe that you can get it from you know the us or europe or whatever it is and then also you know to just maybe think about bringing some of that work in-house i mean i know we talked about vertical integration uh potentially being problematic on the aerospace side but it's just really starting on sort of the industrial general manufacturing side and there's a lot of companies out there talking about cost savings from consolidating their supply chain People are talking more about 3D printing, um, things like that, that I think could really sort of intermediate some parts of the supply chain that, that just maybe may not be necessary in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly adaptive manufacturing seems to work in sort of repair, repairing these big production lines. There's been a lot of invest, venture capital investment towards 3D printing, uh, but it's it's like many things. It's like the flying cars. It's always, we feel like we're on the cusp of it, but the economics aren't there. Uh, for sort of mass production of printed items. I, I don't know. I'm skeptical of whether that would take place. One thing I do think is is happening, I'd love to get your perspective, is companies realizing that the just-in-time supply chain, uh, when it's truly uh, on demand, everything's on demand, uh, is more difficult in an environment where uh, these businesses are much more disrupted uh, and consumers and businesses have real-time information to sort of adapt to that. But what are you are you seeing companies think about how they manage inventory and hold more inventory than in the past? Uh, yes, and I should correct myself. I don't think 3D printing by itself is going to completely rework the supply chain. I think that's an element of it, and you know, probably a lot more comes from this consolidation factor or bringing some of that work in-house, uh, sort of akin to uh, Raytheon bringing some of the airfoil manufacturing. Um, in, in house. But uh, to your other question, this is something, again, that I've heard about that companies are managing, um, you know, more towards sort of a just in case inventory mindset. Now, on the other hand, free cash flow dynamics of these companies have been excellent and they've really managed their working capital well. And now some of that is obviously not paying for travel and, you know, maybe you have employees on furlough or whatever it is, but you're not necessarily seeing huge working capital headwinds from inventory management. And so it's not clear necessarily whether we're seeing a paradigm shift or if this is partly a reaction to the pandemic and a need to sort of 
respond to these huge gaps between supply and demand. I mean, if you think back to the beginning, companies were shutting things down, you know, including maybe some of the items you were trying to buy for your home because people just didn't expect the demand to be there. And now a lot of these companies are playing catch up. And, you know, I think there's also maybe some ordering to get ahead of vibrations that may come down the road. But I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not so convinced that that thinking is necessarily going to stick for some of these companies. I think they'll add the capacity and, and change their inventory management where it makes sense and where they need to. But um, yeah. I mean, they certainly would hold more inventory closer to consumers. I mean, the shift of e-commerce from retail to e-commerce sort of, you know, you think about the fact that these retailers have to have more inventory throughout the supply chain uh, to have those items available to be ordered just means that as more spending goes in that way, we'll see obviously uh, companies having to hold some more inventory. Right now, they're just trying to play catch up. Uh, what are you, de-urbanization is a fact that we're gonna talk a lot over the next couple of days, just how that shift, how consumer are shifting outside of major cities and that's changing the way supply chains are sort of developed. Are you hearing from the manufacturing side that's changing their thinking or are they so upstream that it doesn't really impact how they're uh, managing their supply chains? I think they're so upstream. I mean, a lot of the manufacturing companies that I cover are no longer in consumer facing business. I mean, they've divested so much of those over the years, whether it's GE light bulbs and appliances or, you know, just recently Honeywell sold its rain boot business, um, which was always sort of my uh, favorite factoid that they actually sold brain boots. Um, but, you know, I, I just think they're moving further and further away from the consumer. And so I don't know if that necessarily would be as much of a factor for them, because I just don't think that that's the end user that they look at at this point in time. Yeah. Do, do you think the government will get involved? I and mean, one of the things that sort of struck me is during COVID, just 3M's production of, of N95 masks, are we going to see the government build a supply chain core, you think? And really try to manage inventory of these items that uh, obviously don't make sense for businesses or consumers to own, but in environments where this is this disruption, having that inventory is important. Do we, are we going to reach that point? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think that was the lesson going into this pandemic, that there had been warnings. We didn't have the stockpiles that we needed of face masks, ventilators, uh, whatever it may be. I mean, even with the vaccines, there's now this whole conversation of, well, we can get extra doses out, but you need a certain type of syringe in order to be able to get the extra dose in those Pfizer, Moderna vials, whatever it may be. And so, I mean, I think we're learning the value of some of these things, and it certainly would seem to be imperative to prepare better for the next one. Um, what I can't predict is, you know, once we get to the other side of this, whether there's still that same momentum. I would hope that there is, um, and from the manufacturing point of view, you really need that government force in there to be a large buyer, to make those commitments, to justify adding that manufacturing capacity. I mean, even somebody like 3M that's significantly expanded its footprint to be able to crank out as many N95 masks as possible. I mean, something that analysts are wondering is, will that all still be used down the line? I mean, especially in this pandemic, you now have every retailer out there selling face masks and we all have a bunch of those. So, you know, when, when there's not an immediate pandemic, immediate healthcare need, you're just not going to have the demand level justify that investment unless you have the government backing you up and making those kind of purchasing commitments to keep those factors running. I was on fanatics.com uh, last night looking. They had, after the season, they always put stuff on sale. 
and all the masks, like you look at all the sell items and it was the, the team branded masks. And I thought, well, that's probably smart on their part because I imagine uh, everyone has a, a big inventory of masks. I think it was uh, Haynes actually that was talking the other day about how they're they're going to stop making masks because they just have too many right now and they don't feel like it's a it's a profitable enterprise for them to be in. Just a run up. You turned the the cloth masks that Haynes made and sort of pivoted. What, what in a post COVID world? What in the industrial side of the world? What do you think is going to be the biggest change that? is really broad or accelerated because of COVID. Is there anything significant? Obviously the aerospace industry has its own set of pressures, but more broadly, uh, are we gonna see anything significant come from this that is going to change the way the industrial sector works? I think the biggest thing is gonna be digital. Um, Obviously this is something that manufacturers have been talking about for a very long time, but I think it's taken on a whole new level of importance um, just in terms of the capabilities that this enables from remote monitoring to, you know, actually being able to make changes to your systems from offsite. Uh, I mean, it's really impressive, especially in the HVAC industry where there's so much focus right now on indoor air quality. Uh, And if you think that that focus is going to last after the pandemic, which I do, I mean, I certainly think about it in ways that I I never did before, um, you need a way to analyze that. So if I'm paying for an upgrade to my HVAC system, whether that's just allowing more outdoor air or bipolar ionization, UV lights, whatever it is, I want to know that it's working. I want to know that I'm getting my money's worth for it. And that requires digital technologies. Um, And, you know, when I talk to these companies, they're all seeing increased interest in these products. And I just think, you know, it's just created a a much greater appreciation for the capabilities here. Um, And I think that we will probably see greater adoption of, you know, sort of a broad suite of industrial digital technology. Yeah, we bought a, a Dyson filter that has a HEPA filter built into it, and it has an air quality sensor. And so it sends you an alert uh, if if the air quality is not at a certain level. So it's pretty pretty astounding, this technology evolution. It's interesting because I think we we're going we're gonna to end up there eventually. Maybe it's going to take a decade. It's just accelerated it forward. Um, I have to ask you, because I've asked a lot of folks of this, is you live in New York City. Uh, you're, are you a New, you're not a New York native. No, I'm from Kansas. So. Okay, so you've moved to the you've moved to, to New York. Is Manhattan done as what was a pre-COVID, or is it going to come back? What are your thoughts on sort of the Manhattan New York story? I think it's going to come back. I mean, it's interesting. So I've been here the whole time. Uh, my husband has had to go in the office every single day of this pandemic, so we have been here, um, and I've been a handful of times. And I will say, the shift in Midtown has been very noticeable from probably the first time I went in over the summer to September to uh, you know November to just the other week. And there's more people there. You can feel it sort of coming back and people coming into the offices and in waves. Now, there are also a lot of empty storefronts. So I do think the city is going to look very different. But, you know, I, I just I, I don't know if I believe that it's done, that we're off the map here. And I also think that all of these companies that think that remote working is so great and they're going to have everybody working from home that, you um, they might find that they run into problems with that. I mean, I've been working from home for the most part and 
certainly there are perks like not commuting, but um, you know, it's hard and you're isolated and you're not interacting with your colleagues in the same way. And, you know, I, I just, I, I don't know if it's, um, I think probably more of a hybrid model is what companies will gravitate for. And you're still gonna need the office space for that. Things like, um, I can say when I first started at Bloomberg, I did not officially have a desk and I had to rotate around and it was the biggest pain. <laughs> Ever, because you bring your giant bag of stuff, and I, I don't know if people are really going to like that model. So I think you're going to have to guess. Not, we, we couldn't, you know, we've grown uh, since even before COVID. So it's interesting because not only would we have to get a bigger office just because of staff, but you think about the social distancing and the way you handled it, it's completely different. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'm still, it's interesting because my wife has lived in Manhattan uh, and she, all of her, uh, I call them her city snob friends that used to make fun of her for moving to Tennessee. They've all left and they've all uh, there. But I think there's an element of still coming into the city for entertainment, for, uh, you know, whether it's Broadway or, or going out at the bars and restaurants. I still think that's an important part of cities. I don't think that goes away. Uh, but it's just interesting to sort of get a perspective of someone who's, who's been living through it. Sure. No, I mean, I will say most of my friends that have left are uh, people who have kids who are probably on their way out in the near future anyway. Um, so, you know, I think that might be a factor and maybe it accelerates some of that migration. But, you know, if you want to move to New York for a job after the pandemic, it's probably a good time to get an apartment. It's a deep place. No no plans to move back to Kansas, I guess. That's true. I have, Kansas will always have my heart, but... <laughs> Well, Brooke, really appreciate the conversation. Folks can check out your opinion column and you have a weekly newsletter that comes out. Um, is there is LinkedIn the best way to reach you? Uh, yes, LinkedIn or Twitter is a great way to reach me. But I have the, the sign up link for my newsletter in both places. And so please feel free to sign up. It covers a broad range of industrial topics, sort of like we just did today. So um, sort of anything and everything that falls under the industrial umbrella, I'm, I'm usually looking at in some way. So. All right, Brooke, thank you so much. Uh, continue to tune in to the Global Supply Chain uh, event. We're going to talk about all of the major sectors that are being impacted and impact the future of supply chains and all of the, these major topics in a post-COVID world.